1 Corinthians chapter 15. There is no piece of literature in all the world outside the Bible like 1 Corinthians 15. What a wonderful chapter that tells so much that the world knows nothing about. You can't learn about this in biology or anthropology or sociology or any of those wasted ologies. Because the truth that is in 1 Corinthians 15 is called a mystery. That means it's a mystery to the rest of the world and reserved and revealed to God's saints who will read the Bible. And I, I would love to preach phrase by phrase through 1 Corinthians 15 as I've done twice before in the last 10 years. But I won't. I just want to point out a few things to you. I hope those of you that read it last night in preparation rejoiced. This piece of literature is outstanding. It is a gift from the creator of the universe to you. And you should delight in it. It gives you a history that history books ignore. And that is the history of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't care if a history book refers to Jesus or not. It has to. One third of the earth's population claims to know him. But they don't deal with the history found in the first ten verses that say Jesus rose from the dead a specific way after a specific time and had specific witnesses that saw him alive after he rose from the dead. You want a history book? You want a history chapter? It's right here in 1 Corinthians 15. And then it deals with death. It tells us where death came from. There's no book in an, ed- in an educational system that's not committed to the Bible that can tell you where death came from. They don't even know where we came from, let alone where death came from. Death came from God because God gave it and promised it as a punishment for the wickedness of our first parents. That's where it came from. But we also know the cure, and it's in 1 Corinthians 15. We're told about the first Adam. We're told about the second Adam. We're told about the resurrection of the dead. And we're told that if there isn't a resurrection of the dead, then Christianity is the world's most ridiculous religion. But there is a resurrection of the dead. There is a condemnation of Epicureanism in this chapter. Epicureanism is... Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If it wasn't for a resurrection, that's how we would live. If it wasn't for the resurrection that Jesus Christ is coming back for us, and there's a whole other life waiting for us in just a few days, months, or years, we would be Epicureans. We would cut loose today. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we might die, and then we go out of existence. But we don't go out of existence because our real life, our extended life, is next. This life doesn't even measure on a time scale. If you can take a time scale that would cover the entire front of this auditorium and lay a human hair at one end of it, that might give you an idea of how long your life is. It's worthless in comparison to eternity. The Bible uses 10 or 20 different descriptions to describe your life as being as narrow as a hand's breadth, four inches. It's like a weaver's shuttle. And if you haven't been in a mill, a textile mill, then you don't know how fast a weaver's shuttle moves. It's like a tale that is told. It is like a shadow on the ground. It is like the grass that grows up and then withers. It's like flowers. They're gone in a couple of days. Gone. It's like a vapor. The sun rises and the vapor is gone. That's life. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us all about it. 
It tells us what's coming next. It tells us the end of all things. The second coming of Jesus Christ. If you hear anyone trying to tell you about events after the second coming of Jesus Christ, they're wrong. Right, amen. Because then cometh the end. First Corinthians 15. That, now that's simple. A child can understand Bible prophecy. Then cometh the end. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. We're told at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's get to verse 33. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. If we end up on this next Sunday, it won't hurt us one bit. When it says, wherefore, comfort one another with these words and edify one another with these words, even as also you do, it won't hurt us to be reminded that there is a life after this one. Therefore, this life ought not to be very important. That's the whole message of the Bible. A Christian will outwork a pagan any day in wisdom, respect, duty, and the Lord will bless him for it. But when he goes home at night, he knows that he just did that to put peanut butter in the cupboard so that he can serve his God. And God will take care of him. The Bible has the best of all worlds. It's got a book of Proverbs that teaches about how you ought to conduct yourself in your profession and run your business. And it's got 1 Corinthians 15 that tells us your business is going away. And your real business should be things of eternity. Look at verse 33. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. We often use 1 Corinthians 15.33 to warn you about your friends. And that's an okay second application of that verse. But the real use of 1 Corinthians 15.33 is that there were teachers in the church that was at Corinth that were teaching the resurrection was past. There was no resurrection. Be not deceived. Paul has made his argument all the way up through verse 32. There is a resurrection. Because if there isn't a resurrection, Christ, didn't, Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead, you are in your sins and your religion is vain. He's made his argument. I have seen him alive after his resurrection, and so have more than 500 other brethren at one time. He's made his point. What in the world are you being baptized for if there's no resurrection? All you're showing is a picture of death. He's made his point. Why in the world would I risk my life every single day? I die daily. In persecution against preachers of the gospel, if there was another life. Then he gets to this point. Now, you Corinthians have allowed teachers to come in there and teach the false doctrine that there is no resurrection. He has mentioned that in verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? There were some in the church at Corinth that said there wasn't a resurrection. And so Paul says in verse 33, be not deceived. Don't let that false talking and false teaching deceive you. And don't be deceived that you can get away and allow such a multitude of ideas in the church of God. Evil communications corrupt good manners. It will ruin your life if you do not have a proper perspective of the resurrection and the next life. You'll become an Epicurean. An Epicurean is someone who lives for today. We shouldn't be living for today. We should be living for tomorrow. Amen. Do you know what that tells us? In verse 19, it says that if we don't have the resurrection or life after death, Christianity 
is a miserable religion. We are of all men most miserable without the resurrection. It says in verse 2 that we're to keep in memory what's been preached to us. And what he's talking about there is the resurrection from the dead and life after death. Because if we don't keep that in memory, then we won't be saved. And the salvation under consideration in verse 2 is salvation from that miserable existence, that Epicurean waste of a life. Instead of the hope-filled, joy-filled, peace-filled life of a believer, that there's a whole other life coming that puts this one in the shade. He says in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. Quit listening to these lies. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, you Corinthians. You're letting men talk that don't know what they're talking about. Verse 35, but some man will say, here's a scorner in the church at Corinth. Some man will say, how are the dead raised up? What kind of body do they have? If you ask a question like that, you're a scorner. Your question is foolish and unlearned. And anyone with wisdom will ignore your question. Here's what Paul would say. Two words, and we ought to remember them. When someone asks a question like that, well, if there's a resurrection of the dead, how are the dead raised up? If there's a resurrection of the dead, what kind of a body do they have? Paul is making fun of them. They're scorners. The answer is two words. It's in verse 36. Thou fool. Thou fool. You're a fool for asking such questions. You're a scorner. You are not seeking truth. You are just trying to ridicule the doctrine of the resurrection. Do you remember some Sadducees that came to Jesus? Was their question sincere? They said, Jesus... A woman had a husband and her husband died and she married his brother and he 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 died. She married his brother and he died and she married his brother and he died. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Was that a legitimate question? And Jesus crushed it with Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6. Thou fool! That which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. You fool. You're not even as smart as a farmer that puts a seed in the ground, knowing that that seed he puts in the ground, the plant that comes out of the ground, is going to look totally different than the seed. God gives every seed... A different plant that comes out of the ground. You drop an acorn in the ground, you get a tree. You drop a tomato seed in the ground, you get a tomato plant that bears fruit. You drop a man's body in the ground, it's going to come up and it's going to have another body that God's made for it as it pleased him. And you don't have the right to ask about it. If God hasn't revealed it, it's none of your business. And Paul doesn't go on to say much about its, pers- its individual characteristics except to say it's glorious, it's powerful, it's honorable, it's incorruptible, it's immortal. All the things we want to hear. All the things that we need to hear. He's talking about, he's talking about the human body. He makes a statement in verse 44, the second sentence in verse 44, that second sentence in verse 44, one sentence exceeds all the philosophy of the Aristotles and Socrates and Plato's and other ignorant men of the Greek nation in one sentence. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. 
Their metaphysical reasonings have never come up with an explanation for anything. But the Apostle Paul said there is a natural body, and I'm in one right now, and so are you. And there is a spiritual body, and we're going to be in it soon. It's going to be in heaven. It's called our tabernacle. It's our house, and we're going to be clothed with it. And and he's describing this in pretty wonderful terms. That there's different glories to different bodies. The celestial bodies like the sun and the stars have quite a bit of glory. There's terrestrial bodies that don't have too much. The glory of the moon is different from the glory of the sun and so forth. He explains down through here. He compares the first and second Adam. He compared the first and second Adam in verses 19 through 22. He compared the first and second Adam in verses 45 through 49. He calls the first one earthy. We have a father that's earthy. And what we have from him is earthy. And those of you that were at the funeral or can remember a funeral, you look at the person that's lying there, their spirit has left them, and you can tell that they are definitely of the earth because they've turned to clay already. They're rushing back to clay so fast and so fast back to dust from which they were made. Though we are 70% water right now, as soon as the spirit leaves, the water evaporates because we're not taking any more in. We turn to clay and then to dust because we're earthy. But we have another Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ from glory, and he is heavenly. And it says in verse 49, as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. We are going to look like the Lord Jesus Christ. It says when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall bear the image of the heavenly. We're going to get rid of these bodies. Mine's going fast. Oh. And I hate it in the flesh. I hate its decay. But in the spirit, my spirit wants to get loose from it. It wants to leave it behind. Have you guys toss it in a hole? I'll put a flower over it once every decade. But my spirit will be in heaven with it and get a new one at the resurrection. It says that. Look at verse 50. This is truth that you cannot learn anywhere else. This I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. These corruptible bodies can't go there, so we got to get rid of them. Did we just sing, I'm glad I was born to die? Because all that's going to die is your body. Your soul and spirit are going to heaven to be in the presence of God, and he's going to give you a new body. And we're to come together in the church and remind ourselves of these things, lay hold of these promises, delight in these things, comfort and edify one another about the life that's coming so that this life doesn't get the better of us. Either in trouble, temptation, enticement, nothing. Because we're thinking about the next life. That is what we have a church for. That is what the gospel is for. It brings life and immortality to light, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ And we're to live in light of eternity. Behold, I show you a mystery. If Matthew would show me some of his mysteries, they would no longer be a mystery. Paul showed some mysteries. What is a mystery when we read it in the Bible? Something natural man can't figure out. Something that's not taught in school. Something that the wisest think tanks in the country do not know about. Behold, I show you a mystery. What is the mystery? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
Not everyone is going to have to die because Jesus Christ is going to come back at some point in time and all those that are alive at His coming back will not have to die. All those that have died and those that are still alive, they all shall be changed because we must be changed to go to heaven because flesh and blood cannot inherit that place. Corruption, which is what we're filled with, cannot go there. No disrespect to your grandmother whatsoever, you two brothers. But she is corrupting so fast right now, it's unbelievable. From the inside out, corruption takes place so fast because we are corruptible. But we're going to put on incorruption to get into heaven. And then it's explained to us when this is going to happen. How long is it going to take? A moment. How long of a moment? In the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trump. Now we have two writers. Just bear with me. We have a writer of 1 Corinthians. We have a writer of Revelation. And the writer of Revelation talks about trumpets. And this guy here, Paul, talks about a trumpet. Do we really have writers or do we have one author? And that one author said, at the last trump. There's no more declarations of God to do anything. It's the last trumpet when Jesus comes. And it tells us that. The trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's when it's going to happen. Do you know how many details you're given in 1 Corinthians 15? It's a wonderful chapter. Love it. Delight in it. Orville, is it still your favorite? Good. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and so forth. And when this corruptible, when we get our new bodies, then it's going to be brought to pass the saying from Isaiah 25, death is swallowed up in victory. We're going to sing victory in Jesus in the second service. Death is swallowed up in victory. Sometimes when we have an athletic competition or a business competition, we say, this one ate this one for lunch. Or this one ate this one for breakfast. Death shall be swallowed up in victory. It's just eaten up. It's just swallowed. Because it's destroyed and put out of the way. Death is swallowed up in victory. When Jesus Christ comes the second time, then will be brought to pass that saying in its fullest ramifications, because there will be no more death or dying. But for all practical purposes, for all purposes of pain and suffering, for all purposes of threat and danger, For all purposes of fear and trouble, there is no death. It's already been abolished. There's no penal punishment upon the children of God. They're just dying to shed these bodies because we can't get into heaven with something corruptible because they stink. You know what you had to put on this morning? You know why you had to take a shower? Because you're corrupting. But when we get to heaven, we're going to be incorruptible. So we're going to all be changed. Then we have verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? From Hosea, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, Paul explains in verse 56. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We range in this church from the age of 77 and three quarters right down to less than a year. And you are scattered along that scale somewhere. And the day is coming in which you're going to have your departure. Are you ready for it?
To be ready for it is to lay hold of the promises of God and to believe all that He has said about death so that we can go toward it cheerfully as a child leaping into the arms of his father, as we're going to leap into the arms of our father. It is coming. We need to comfort one another, which means to give strength to one another, to help one another, to edify, to build each other up about these things. So that when it comes, we're not making efforts to prepare. We're already prepared. We're ready. So we sing about it. We talk about it. We read these passages. We seek to delight in 1 Corinthians 15. We delight in 1 Thessalonians 4. We delight in the other places in Scripture where death is mocked and Paul tells us it's far better to depart. Paul would have died a lot sooner than he did. He wanted to die sooner than he did. But he decided to stay because God wanted him to stay for the sake of the churches of the New Testament. Right. He had the right attitude. Because he was totally focused on heaven. His whole life was that I might be found in him and that I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. So he lived his whole life in light of that day. This past week, we've heard of potential death. We've remembered a close death. We've celebrated a believer's death. The house of mourning is the best place you can go. Far better than a party. A funeral is better than a birthday party. A birthday party does you no good at all. A funeral does you good because that's where you're going, and it helps make you sober and reflective and meditative about your life. A funeral is a good thing to do. And the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that very plainly. It is better to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. For that is the end of all flesh, and the living will lay it to his heart. A wise man will lay it on his heart that death is coming for me, therefore I should live in light of it. Not the frivolity and amusement of a party. We need to muse on death rather than be amused at a party. Recreation, pleasure, sports, and amusement, those don't do you any good. They don't make you better. A funeral makes you better. And so the wise man tells us that. You know, you were given existence with death stamped all over it. Death. And you weren't asked if you wanted existence, and you weren't asked if you wanted to die. But you were given existence with death stamped all over it, but we have a deliverer. And it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. The most important thing you can do in your life is to prepare for the day of your death so that you arrive confident and ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. For that is your day of rest and retirement, and that is the day that your rewards will follow for your works. There's lots of deaths in the Bible. What we're talking about is the death of the physical body. Believers know the origin of death, the nature of it, the end of it, the cause, the cure, the abolition of it. We know all those things from the Bible. Men have come up with all sorts of schemes to try to get rid of death. They've come up with annihilation. When you die, you go out of existence. You're annihilated. Because they don't want to deal with the judgment of God and eternal consequences for their life on earth. Jehovah's Witnesses... And other groups like that, and it's, it's getting more popular, annihilation. You just go out of existence. Why in the world would you live a life of self-denial if you just went out of existence? Why, in the, why would you even be moved to it? Reincarnation is a heresy of paganism that proposes recycling instead of annihilation. But you know, that's a ridiculous theory. Then you get to die many times. You know, you come back as a camel, then you come back as a grasshopper. 
You come back as a worm and you get to die all four times. Once as a human, once as a camel, once as a grasshopper, and once as a worm. All these theories of men, because they didn't submit themselves to the wisdom of God's Word. Universalism is a heresy that claims all men are going to go to heaven. And universalism is the fastest growing ism in the world today. Universalism, everyone goes to heaven. These heresies are rampant, but they're not all brand new. The Sadducees denied the resurrection as long ago as Jesus, 2,000 years ago. You know, Roman Catholics are so ignorant. You know what they do to stave off death and comfort themselves about death? Hail Mary, Mother of God, help us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Remember that? Anyone else in here remember it? At the hour of our death. Do you know what happened to Mary when she became 70 years old? She died too. Now, how's Mary going to help you at the hour of your death? So they pray to Mary. Well, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a prayer. You want to hear a prayer to get ready for dying? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who said it? Stephen did. Our brother Stephen. Stones and rocks were rattling off his body. He was bleeding internally. He had cuts all over him. Acts chapter 7, he was stoned to death by the Jews. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Praise the Lord. That's the way to die. Don't you pray to Mary. She can't help you. She needed as much help as you need. The Lord Jesus Christ had enough for her and you and all the elect so that he could say, not one can be plucked out of my hand. Do you remember saying that? Terrible thing to say. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from such isms and heresies. You know, if a wicked man dies peacefully, it just means that he was stupid. That's all that it means. If you see a wicked man die peacefully, it's just because he's stupid. Because if he knew what was coming, he wouldn't be dying peacefully. He's just dumb. He's ignorant. He doesn't know what's coming. He doesn't know the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know what the consequences are going to be for a wicked life without a Savior. Death is the consequence of sin, so we have to get paid the wages of sin. And I have taught you that so many times before. I want you to look at Job chapter 18 with me, please. And let's talk about death as the king of terrors, and then let's look at how good it is. Death is only the king of terrors to a wicked man who doesn't have faith in the Bible and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. But if you don't have faith in the Bible, if you don't know God as your Father, and if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ who has saved you, Death is called the king of terrors. Job 18. I'd like to read the whole chapter. Listen to these words. As it talks about God's judgment upon wicked men and the nature of death. Verse 5. Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of his fire shall not shine. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle. And his candle shall be put out with him. The steps of his strength shall be straightened, and his own counsel shall cast him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walketh upon a snare. The jinn shall take him by the heel, and the robber shall prevail against him. The snare is laid for him in the ground, and a trap for him in the way. Terrors shall make him afraid on every side. 
and shall drive him to his feet. His strength shall be hunger bitten and destruction shall be ready at his side. It shall devour the strength of his skin. Even the firstborn of death shall devour his strength. His confidence shall be rooted out of his tabernacle and it shall bring him to the king of terrors. Death is the king of terrors. But we have a greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has took and taken away the sting and terror of death, if our faith and trust is in him and the promises of God's precious word. Brethren, death is a terrible thing. But it's getting rid of these corruptible bodies so that we can inherit the kingdom of God above. Listen, and I've said this to you before, you'll remember. Death is sucking the memory out of your brain right now. How often do you change skin? You think snakes are unique? That they leave their skin around and get it, grow a new one? Anybody remember? Anybody from anatomy want to talk about it? Every seven years you have a whole new set of skin. Because you're just dying. It's dying all the time. Flaking off. Dying. So you've got to replace it. But you get, eventually reach a point where you don't replace it. And the water balloon has no skin. So everything runs out of it. Death is sucking the memory out of your brain, the sight out of your eyes, the hearing out of your ears, the teeth out of your mouth, the taste out of your tongue, the moisture out of your mouth, the elasticity and clarity out of your skin, the firmness out of your flesh, the hormones out of your body, the form out of your shape, the strength out of your bones, the power out of your muscles, the flexibility out of your joints, the color and shine out of your hair, the hair off your head, the brightness out of your eyes, the desire and ability out of your sex, the insulin out of your pancreas, the processing out of your kidneys, the courage out of your mind, the remaining beats out of your heart, and the life out of your soul. That's what we get for the Garden of Eden. But it's been put down by the second Adam. Let those things happen. I'm going to get a new set of teeth and new desire and everything new in heaven. And it's going to be a glorified body. And that's what we want to rejoice in. Death was ignored by Elijah and Enoch, wasn't it? What happened to Elijah and Enoch? The Lord took them and they went to heaven. How could the Lord do that? Because he has the power over death. He just said, no, death doesn't apply to them. Because God is able to do that. And He's going to let us go ahead and go through it unless Jesus Christ comes back. Because He wants to see if we'll jump off the platform into His arms. He just wants to see us trusting Him. It has no penal power over us. It's how we get to go to heaven. It's the door to heaven. It's the highway to heaven. It's the door into the train or into the plane. It's the departure place. It's the departure way. So we delight in it. Death. It's no king of terrors to us. It's a key to us. And who holds the key? Jesus Christ the righteous. He has the key of David. He opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man opens. I have the keys of hell and of death, Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. When it says keys, it means the authority and power of hell and of death. He can loose and He can bind. And He's going to loose all of us. 
Death will not bind us. We just get rid of our bodies and into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ and His angels that He sends to carry us to heaven. Death didn't end Abraham. Who buried Abraham? Isaac and Ishmael buried Abraham. But do you know what? A few chapters later, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. And Jesus would look at that sentence by the power of the Holy Spirit and His divine wisdom and tell the Jews of His day, because Exodus 3, 6 says, I am the God of Abraham, even though Abraham had been dead for 400 years, therefore Abraham is still alive somewhere. Because God is not the God of the dead, He is the God of the living. That is how we use our Bibles. If it says am in Exodus 3, 6, we believe that it's a present tense verb, and it should be. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, because now Abraham's dead. He said, I am the God of Abraham, even though it was 400 years later. And Jesus took that and made an argument from a single word, and that's why we use the Bible the way we do. That's hermeneutics, the science of interpretation, in using the, way, the Bible the way the Bible uses the Bible. Jesus would argue from one word. So we argue from one word. I am the God of Abraham. He was still alive. He had finally found Canaan. The real Canaan. Heavenly Canaan. No wonder the Lord Jesus Christ said that Lazarus died and went into Abraham's bosom. There's no other place that a Jew would want to go. Abraham was the greatest father of that nation, and he was the father of the faithful, and he was the one that sought heaven by leaving the land of the Chaldeans to go into Canaan. And so he was in the presence of Abraham, because Abraham's in heaven where the spirits of just men are. Death didn't end Abraham. Abraham was willing to die. He knew, the Lord told him when he was going to die. Death is a blessed event. Look at Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. This week in reading with my little family, we read in Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1, it says the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Can you believe that statement? The day of death is better than the day of birth. We celebrate and pass out cigars at the day of birth. What do you want us to do for you, brother? Cigar anyone? At the day of death. I'm... You know, I had to pick on, there's only a few in here that would, could handle one of those things. Two ways. Solomon saw all the vexation and vanity of life. Do you know what brings it to an end? Getting a new job? No. What brings the vanity and vexation of life to an end? Death. Right. Second thing. There is a whole other life after this one. Right. So the day of death becomes better than the day of birth. That's a different perspective, isn't it? How's that for philosophy class? Children, let's learn today that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Instead of having birthday parties, let's start having... Anyway, that wouldn't sound good on a tape. But you know the point. Right. Look at Numbers chapter 23. This is one unique statement. This man was a false prophet 
And God inspired him to say some things that were true that he didn't want to say and that weren't true about him. Numbers 23, this is Balaam, the false prophet, on hire for Balak, king of Moab. Numbers 23, 10. Who can count the dust of Jacob? He's supposed to be cursing Israel, but instead he's blessing. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? He's saying in those two clauses that Israel's going to be so numerous you wouldn't even be able to count them. Let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. Exclamation point. Balaam was really getting worked up when he said, let me die the death of the righteous. But you know what? He didn't. Can you, do you know what God did with that man? That's for you. But it wasn't for Balaam. That's the righteous. Let me die the death of the righteous because the death of the righteous is a blessed event. It's a good thing. Let my last end be like his. Your last end? You mean your last breath? You mean when the heart monitor goes flat? Let my last end be like his. No, because after that is eternal glory. Look at Revelation 14. Let's go from one end of the Bible to the other. The message of the Bible is that death is the wages of sin, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Death is just how we go to heaven and meet Him and are with Him forever. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write. Oh, thank you, Lord, for having this written down. Write. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. If you were to read the book of Revelation, you see enormous persecutions coming. You see a description of martyrs for the name of Jesus. You see in the very previous verse the patience of the saints. And that patience is the enduring of tribulation and persecution. And to encourage them, the Lord Jesus Christ said, Write. Write these poor people that are going to have to suffer so much a little word of encouragement. Write, blessed are the dead. Blessed are the dead that die. Now that's a new philosophy, isn't it? Blessed are the dead that die. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Because dying in the Lord makes all the difference. All the difference. We want to be in the Lord so that we can die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit, and here's an explanation of the blessing. That they may rest from their labors. All their troubles, trials, difficulties, work, efforts here on earth are done. They can rest. You like the idea of retirement? I like the idea of retirement there. That'll be rest and retirement in heaven. Whatever labor the Lord gives us in heaven is going to be such a pleasure to our souls, it will not seem like work. And their works do follow them. Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Everything they've done on earth, even if it's as small as giving a cup of cold water to a disciple in Jesus' name, they're going to be rewarded for it in heaven. 
Now that's encouragement. Could you get your strength up if you were in a cell and you were going to be led out and burned to death at a stake because you denied that the Pope of Rome had any relationship to Jesus Christ? Could you deny that Mary was the mother of God and go to that stake and lay down your life because you trusted in Revelation fourteen thirteen? Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord from henceforth. The readers of this epistle could see that the Lord had something special in store for them. Now listen, everybody that had died in the Lord before this was still blessed. This is just to focus attention on those the book of Revelation is about. Right. Abraham was a blessed man. He was in heaven. The thief was with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it tells us these things. If you read the proverb for this weekend, it's Proverbs 14.32 where the wise man said that the righteous hath hope in his death. There's hope in the death of the righteous. But the wicked lose everything. They're driven out of this life with nothing. Except trouble coming. You know, can you, don't you, do you get a little smile on your face when you read suicide notes? I decided to end all the pain. What a foolish note to write. They've never known pain compared to what's coming. Look at Isaiah 57. Do you think of death as rest and retirement? It truly is. It's only a lack of faith that keeps us fearful of death. Isaiah 57, verse 1, the righteous perisheth. Isaiah 57, 1, the righteous perisheth. Oh, that I could die the death of the righteous. Remember, let's compare Scripture with Scripture. Do you, do you remember what Balaam said? The righteous has, hath hope in his death. What Solomon said? Now look at what Isaiah said. The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. That's heaven. That's a description of what it's like for the righteous to die. They get to have enormous peace. They get to rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Their sins are purged away, and they're in heaven walking and resting in bed. And they've been delivered from the evil to come. Can you think of a few kings that died like that in, in Judah? Remember Josiah? Because he humbled himself before the word of God, God took him away before the trouble came. Even Ahab was taken away before the trouble came. I'll do it in the days of his sons, but I won't do it in his day. Josiah got to go rest in his bed, enjoying peace, while God's judgment fell on Judah. And it was not pretty. But he was preserved from it because he was righteous. And we would be very wise. We all in here know of a very fine young woman that at about the age of 30 died. Melanie Painter. Inexplicable to us naturally. But Isaiah 57, 1 and 2 gives us the answer. We don't know what trouble was going to come or could have come. But we know she's in peace and in her bed, resting in, in heaven. Amen. The Bible wants to describe it as a retirement home. Heaven. Everybody worries about their retirement here in this world. There's one coming. that The Lord's already set up for us. Right. He's gone to prepare a place for us. You know all the verses that tell us that death is called sleeping in Jesus in the Bible. Look at Genesis 25 and verse 8. 
death is called a family reunion. Genesis 25 and verse 8. Genesis 25, 8. Then Abraham gave up the ghost. What is death? The spirit leaves the body. The spirit is what animates and gives the body vitality. Without that, it's just a, a, a bag of water. A, bun- a bunch of clay with a bunch of water. But the spirit animates it. When the spirit's out, it becomes lifeless. And the animation and vitality of the human body ends and it immediately begins to decay. God took dust, gathered it together, breathed into it the breath of life, and man became a living soul. When that soul departs, it goes back to dust. When a man dies, willingly, cheerfully, submissively, he gives up the ghost. He gives up the spirit that is in him. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he laid down his life. We want to lay down our lives. We don't want to be fighting, holding on to bed rails, trying to stay there for another minute. You're not going to stop it, and you might as well go cheerfully and peacefully. And we should if we're full of faith. 25.8 Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. A family reunion took place because Abraham was gathered to those fathers before him and his people and those that were the righteous before him because the Bible tells us that heaven has the spirits of just men made perfect. And if you go back and read the genealogy of Abraham, you know that some of those men were God's children. Gathered to his people. He wasn't gathered to his relatives in a cemetery in Ur of the Chaldeans. He was buried in Canaan. And there was no one buried beside him except Sarah. It's talking about his soul. Right. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back the second time to gather us all together. Right. He was gathered early. There's many more references like that throughout the Bible of the family reunion of death. But I'll tell you something. The wicked are gathered to their people, too. The wicked are gathered to their people. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 and see what Paul calls death. He was ready to die in 2 Timothy 4. From all that we can tell, it's the last chapter he wrote because of his, his references to his death. 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says in verse 6, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. He calls it a departure time. The time of my departure. We go into a train station, plane station, and we have departure times. It's because a journey is going to be made. Death is simply our journey into heaven into the presence of Christ. To be absent from the body, the minute we give up our spirit and say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, when the spirit leaves our body, it's present with the Lord. To be absent from the Lord is to be present in the body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no in We just go. It's a trip. It's a journey. I'm ready for my departure. He wasn't worried about it. He was ready for it. That's what he said. I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. But he had the proof that he was a righteous man that he could trust 
that he could know that he had lived his life to the best of his ability for the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I have fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. That's what we want to do. Right. We want to fight a good fight. We want to finish our course. We want to keep the faith. And henceforth, there's a crown of righteousness laid up for those that love the appearing of Jesus, just as there was for Paul. Peter described it as a putting off of his tabernacle. Your body is a tabernacle. It's a house in which you live. You're going to be put it off. You're going to put it off when you die. We're going to get rid of this thing because we can't take it into heaven. Corrupting bodies, not allowed. But we're going to be given a new heaven, I mean a new body from heaven, a new house to be clothed with. Paul describes that at length in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he said in that very place that he was confident. He was very confident that he was ready to die. Because of the words I just said a moment ago, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we are to walk by faith, not by sight. Death is the final payday. The Lord Jesus Christ says, when you, when you want to take someone out to eat, take someone out to eat that can't take you back out to eat. That can't take you out to eat to pay you back. Take them out to eat. Because in the great day of the resurrection, you'll be repaid. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. Our lives and everything we do should be structured toward that day that's coming. Even in events like that. We shouldn't look for any payback in this world. Look for payback in the next world if you have to look at all. If Jesus said to do it, that should be good enough. You know, death is our escape from temptation. Paul said, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? As he talked about the sin that was in his flesh. And then he said, thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's the planting of a seed. When you die and we bury you in a cemetery, we're going to put the seed of your body in the ground with as much confidence as a farmer puts a kernel of corn in the ground to get a corn plant from that seed. Because we put your body in the ground, according to 1 Corinthians 15 that we've already referred to, you are going to get a heavenly body out of that death in comparison to farming. Because you're going to get a glorified body in heaven. Death has already been tasted for us by the Lord Jesus Christ in its pain. We're just going to go out of this world and be in the presence of God. Can you jump into the everlasting arms? We jump in every day. It's just one more time to jump and to trust Him because underneath are the everlasting arms. Jesus has obtained immortality for us. The dominion of death has been overthrown. It has no more dominion over us. Paul would say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Gain, brethren. Gain. It's better. You know, marriages have to have those words put in them sometimes. Till death do us part. Because all the promises of marriage and all the promises of love that are made in a wedding ceremony, they quickly come to an end when death takes one of those people away. Till death do us part. Because death does part all marriages. And you will not be married in heaven. But you know what? It says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 38, But neither death nor life nor any other thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no till death do us part when it's the love of God toward us. Are you dead to this world? Or are you keeping alive a little bit of life toward it? If you're dead toward this world, you'll live in the next one. If you're alive toward this world, all the evidence is you're going to be dead in the next one. In the second death. 
die to self today so that we can live to him now and later. And we should edify one another with these thoughts. And there's so many more thoughts that can be given about death. Let us prepare now, not in the day of death. Let's prepare now so that when it comes, we're ready for it. We're cheerful. We're joyful. We're trusting. We're full of faith. We're full of peace. We're full of hope by the power of the Holy Ghost. Because we know that death has been defeated. That through that light veil of death awaits everlasting glory to be with Jesus Christ our Savior. But let's prepare for it now by reading, meditating, praying, asking the Lord for, to increase our faith, encouraging one another in the promises of the Word of God, and living so that we can lay hold of eternal life. Right. Living a confident, righteous, godly life so that in that day we and everyone around us know that person is going to heaven. Oh yes, it can be known. Are you kidding? Of course it can be known. If a person's lived a righteous life with the fruit of the Spirit, there's only one way to do that. By the power of the Holy Ghost. If a person's lived a carnal life but was baptized and said they love the Lord, they're the ones that we can't, we don't know about at all. In fact, if they've lived a life that they're minding earthly things, they're belly worshipers and they're probably not going to heaven. That's the way it's going to be. You'll never hear me preaching someone into heaven that doesn't belong there, even if it's one of you. I've heard all that garbage before. I'll never do it. But if you've got the fruit of eternal life in your life, and it's not very hard to have it. Either you've got it or you don't. Either you love the things of this world and you talk about them all the time, or you love the things of the next world and you talk about them. We'll know. Jonathan Carnell, you're a long ways from me. I can barely see you these days. When you were Velcroed down to that board at Greenville Memorial's emergency room, everyone in the waiting room could easily commit you into God's hands. I could say this about others, but we thought that young Jonathan might die from that auto accident. We knew right where you were going. I had total confidence. It's not my confidence that gets you into eternity. Right. And that isn't the point at all. It's, we can be confident of one another. Amen. If we're living a righteous life and we love the Lord Jesus Christ and spiritual things are the most important to us, we despise the things of this world and we show the real character of our heart by submitting to the Word of God and doing the things that are described there, and we, we want to praise and adore the Lord Jesus Christ, that shows the character of somebody ready for heaven. You just keep it up. The real disciples are those that continue. You know what Simeon said? Simeon, in Luke chapter 2, verse 29, he said, Lord, now is thy servant ready to depart. I'm ready to die. Do you know why? Because I have seen the Christ. I have seen the Savior. But do you know what? We have seen the Savior. We have seen the Savior by faith because God has opened our hearts and opened our eyes to see Him through these pages. And do you know what Jesus Himself said to comfort us? That more blessed are those that believe without seeing than Simeon. Because we believe the record that God has given of His Son. Lord, now I'm ready. I've seen my Savior. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if, 
If when His commandments from Scripture come to you, you want to put them into practice in your life, that is the evidence that you are a child of God. Lay hold of that and do those things. If you love the things of this life and chafe against the things of God's Word, humble yourself and repent if there's any strength in you to do it. Jesus would say to Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. The Lord is likely going to let some of us taste death. But it doesn't matter. The death is no penal threat against us. It's been abolished, and we're going to live forever. As soon as we pass through, we're going to meet each other. And brethren, we'll make every effort to remember your passing in the way that it should be remembered. We'll make every effort to have it right in here. And we will sing how sweet to die. And we will remember the things and promises of the word of God. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm going to resurrect myself. I have resurrected. I will resurrect Lazarus. I will resurrect every soul of every child of God by regeneration. I'll resurrect every body from the dead, good and bad, for two halves of a, of a resurrection. The judgment of the good, the judgment of the evil. I am the resurrection. I am the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, though he may have to taste death, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die in any penal way or troubling way. Believest thou this? Believest thou this? Amen. One final verse. Only we can understand this. Only believers can understand this is what I mean. John chapter 8, verse 51. Listen to these words. They're very short. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. If a man keep my sayings, he shall never see death. Let's keep the sayings of the Lord Jesus Christ and approach that day with confident hope through Jesus Christ, our Savior. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Thanks be to God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.